following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Here in Mark chapter 3, we're going to read verses 13 to 19 and then go to the Lord in prayer. Please look at verse 13. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus, we come and just begin by thanking you for the ministry of CPC and thanking you for the common grace that you show to us as a race, as a, as a society, as a nation, that we are inconsistent in our rebellion. Because if we were consistently in rebellion against you, this world would be anarchy. And yet you have protected us from ourselves And you have spared us from much of what we could have done and continue to do that. And we trust that you will continue to do it. And we're thankful for, for ministries like CPC who are out there on the front lines trying to reach these women, these husbands, these boyfriends, these parents, these grandparents, and all of these family and friends that are out there pushing, pushing these girls to this end. And so for every life saved, we rejoice. Every family saved, we rejoice. We thank you that not only are they interested in saving lives, but they're interested in proclaiming the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that we and what we do here at Cornerstone, whether it's through baby bottles or walks or monthly support or things like we've done today out of the the coffee bar, just all these little things that are dollars and cents to us that you will take them and use them along with all the other people around Hampton Roads who are who are partnering together in this cause and that you will use it to spare more and more lives. Please, Lord, we ask that you end this slaughter, that you end this Holocaust. Lord, spare us as a nation from this tragedy and help us as your children, as your people, to be active in proclaiming the gospel all those around us. We're not trying to convince them of a political view. We're trying to convince them of of an image in which they have been made, in which these children have been made, and that image is yours. And we are fallen, but you have offered salvation through Christ, and so we thank you for that. So Lord, now as we turn and we enter your word, I pray that you will again help us to see you, understand you, understand your word, your truth, Change us into your image through this. Help us to be more like you as we walk out of here today to understand and see the world like you. We want our worldview to be shaped by your word, not by our culture. And so I pray, Lord, that you'll give us clarity. Help me, Lord, to speak clearly and accurately the things that we see here in the text. And so we love you, Lord. We ask your spirit to be active in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I shared with you in the past, God opened my eyes to the gospel when I was a 
freshman in college, about 18 years old. And after coming to Christ, I recognized, recognized that I needed a little bit of, of help in understanding exactly what it was that I was supposed to be doing and what I, how I was supposed to be living as a new believer. Um, and it was in that time of questioning that I came across this little booklet. It was about probably this big, not very thick at all. This little booklet called Basics for Believers by a guy named Jim Berg. And, and the book was, was there to, to just explain some of the most basic foundational elements of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, So I think there were eight chapters. And I use the word chapter as loosely as possible because I don't think uh, a chapter could have been more than maybe four pages in length. So each of these chapters would focus on one specific uh, aspect of, of being a new believer. So for example, like the first chapter I think was on reading the Bible. So it was asking questions like, what is the Bible? And, and why should you be reading it? And it would give you verses to look up and questions along the way with blank. So you should read the Bible because the Bible is blank. See 2 Timothy 3.16. So here I am like, you know, going through trying to find it. Oh, I should be reading the Bible because the Bible is inspired. It was inspired. And then, you know, it just keeps going from there. And while that may seem overly basic to some of you, for me personally, at that point in my life, that, that little booklet was huge. I mean, it was, it was huge. It was, it was because of that booklet that I began to read and, and try to study Scripture every day, as such as I could at that point. It was because of that booklet that I began to, to try to pray every day. It gave me a little model of how to pray based on the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, if you're familiar with that. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I mean, that seems simple perhaps to some of us now, but at that moment, I really didn't have a framework really for knowing what I should be doing. And so that acronym and that little booklet helped me with that. It, it was because of that booklet that I began to memorize scripture. If I remember correctly, it gave me a list of like 20 or 40, 20 to 40, I'd say, verses or little small passages of scripture to memorize about various subjects, various things. And so I began to try to work through that, memorizing those and because it said it was important. And, and in fact, it was. And and so what you should be seeing here is that that little booklet, as, as simple as it was, gave me some needed and important direction there in those early days of my salvation, which if I could pause at this early point in our message, which of course I can, um, if I could pause and make a statement here just about that, I think that's something some of us tend to forget when we're dealing with the people around us in our life or in our community groups or here within the church. You forget that not everyone is exactly where you are in, in their journey for spiritual things. And so it's like uh, what the writer of Hebrews says here in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. He says, for though by this time, he's saying this to his readers, for by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, the solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from e evil. He's using as an illustration here what believers can, can handle and, and not handle at different stages of their development. He's using food as the illustration of that. And, and he's simply making the observation that a new believer is like a baby. They, they need milk. They, they are basic at this point. They can't understand everything. And so by, by having that steady diet of milk, they're able to grow. They can't quite handle the New York Strip yet, right? That, that's not going to work for them. Someone who's more mature, they can, they can eat a steak, but that's, 
That's not where people begin. And I think sometimes we expect too much out of folks in their spiritual journey. We expect them to, to be where we are. So just because they, or excuse me, you can handle a rack of lamb. You, you think that the person sitting next to you this morning or next to you in your community group or next to you in your Bible study or next to you whatever, you think they're also able to handle it. And quite frankly, they're not. And so you begin to get frustrated with them. And, and you know, like they're still at the mashed pea level, right? They're up from milk, but they haven't made it to Cheerios yet. They're at mashed peas, which parents, have you ever tasted those? I tasted those once and I was like, never again. Okay, that's, that's where they're at. And I think, and if I could encourage you just at the very most personal and practical level, as you're interacting with folks and you're trying to teach, whether it's your kids or or someone in your community group or whatever, it's formally here in a classroom or informally in life, one of the goals of being a teacher and a communicator of truth is to try to gauge where your, your student is, where your listener is, and then to feed them accordingly. So if they're at a stake level, you feed them steak, and you eat the steak with them. And if they're at the milk level, you feed them milk, and you drink the milk with them, okay? That's one of the the marks of being a good teacher, that you can discern that and work with it and go with it, and it's really just as simple as that, but I digress. You know, here at that point in my life, I was clearly a milk drinker, right? (laughs) And that booklet was all that I could handle and all that I could digest and all I could put into practice and and God really did use that in my life, and I'm very thankful for it. And yet, yet I recognized even then that as good as that booklet was, it wasn't the best thing I could have had. See, what I really wanted at that point was for someone, not a booklet, okay, someone to come alongside of me and to put their arm around me and say, hey, you're a new believer. Let me show you the way. Let me show you how to live. Let me show you what to do. Let me show you how to respond. Let me talk to you about some things you need to stop doing. And let's talk about some things you need to start doing. Let's talk about who you are now in Christ. I, I really wanted that. Uh, an older person, younger person, I didn't really care at that point. There was no one around me to do that. I wasn't in a church. I didn't have a pastor or, or a church family at that moment to come around me. There were a couple of older guys that I knew. And by older, I mean like mid to late 20s. One of them was married, which when you're 18, someone in their mid to late 20s is like ancient, right? Now I look back and I'm like, man, those guys were like kids. They didn't know nothing. And I was looking to them for help, right? And they were helpful. I I don't want to like give them a hard time. They were helpful. They tried to answer questions for me and talk to me if I needed help at things. But, But neither of them ever took me under their wings to disciple me, okay? I put the word disciple there in quotes because we're going to talk about that concept today. I I was very much on my own at this point, and quite frankly, I hated it. I wanted to be discipled. I just didn't know where to turn. Now, I'm curious, am I alone in that experience? Have you, or are you, either way, don't raise your hand, don't, don't say anything, but have you ever been in that position? Were you in that position as a new believer? Are you there now where you just wanted someone to come alongside, put their arm around you and say, let's go this way. This is the way Christ is going. Let's follow him. Let's go this way and we'll, we'll see where this leads. It was those memories that came flooding back to me this week as I studied and thought about our text here in Mark chapter 3. We're taking a few weeks, I don't know exactly how many, but a few weeks here 
to work through this first group of responders, so they're the first responders, to work through the first group of responders here in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. And if you weren't here last week or the week prior, in in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35, Mark shows us some varying responses to who Jesus Christ is and to the claims that he's making. And so there's basically two. Response number one is that you might believe him and accept his claims. Response number two is that you will reject his claims either because you think he's crazy or because you think he's just wrong. You think he's a liar. Whatever he's saying isn't true. Either way, you're rejecting him. And it's this first group of responders here in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35, that that Mark wants to show us. And these are ones that, that believe. These are ones who respond in belief to Jesus and his claims. And specifically, we're going to see here in in Mark 3, 13 to 19, that it's these 12 men whom Jesus calls to be his apostles, who are the the first Mark highlights as those who believe. And so we're taking a few Sundays just to get to know these guys, right? It's important to know these guys because they're going to be main characters in all four Gospels and through all the rest of the New Testament. And so if we don't really understand them and we don't know who they are, we don't have this foundation to build on, then we're going to be maybe not lost per se, but we definitely won't understand like we should and could. And so I'm trying to help give you that foundation. And I began that process last week by asking and answering two introductory questions that I hope were helpful to you in, in laying that foundation. The first question was, who are these guys? Who, just who are they generally? And, and this is important because as you talk about the apostles with people, you, you realize very quickly that a lot of people have very wrong ideas about them. They see them as these saints who, like even in the pictures I showed last week, are walking around with Jesus with halos on their head. Like they're so much better than everyone around them. Or, or we picture them in like a misguided kind of cultural way where we think they look and acted just like we do. Or we see them as objects of, of worship and veneration. And I, I tried to show you last week that all of those ways of seeing them are wrong. That, that in the end, in reality, these guys are nobodies, right? Nobodies. They are, to again quote MacArthur's title, just 12 ordinary men with nothing special and nothing particularly distinguishing about them. We also talked about when they were called, because many people read the Gospels and they get confused because they just see Jesus walking and he's like, hey, follow me. And they're like, yeah, sure, why not? And so we, we hear that and we don't know what to, to make of it, but I showed you last week that there are three distinct phases in their calling. I'm going to remind you of this very quickly now and then we'll come back to it at the end. But there's that introduction phase, which you see, for example, in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, where, where I think it's John and Andrew are with John the Baptist, and Jesus comes walking by, and John says, look, the Lamb of God. And so they're like, see you, John, and they follow Jesus. And they spend that day with him, just getting to know him, understanding who he is. It's their introduction to Jesus. And so that's the first phase. Phase number two is the following phase in Mark chapter 1. Where Jesus does come to them and says, please follow me. And now they leave their nets, they leave their boats, and they begin to follow him full time. They just join uh, that entourage, that larger group of disciples that's with him. We don't know how big that group was, but they become a a part of that group. And they, they follow him full time. And then phase three, I called the ministry phase. That's what we're seeing here in Mark 3, where they are officially called to the office of apostle. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. 
And I, and I noted from a timeline perspective that that last phase where they're called to the office of apostle, it doesn't come until there's only about 18 months left in Jesus's life. Okay? That's very important to remember as we think about this and talk about this and read the Gospels. That's our best guess. About 18 months are, are remaining in Jesus' life when he calls these 12 men. And from that point forward, Jesus is going to pour the majority of his time and energy into these 12 men. And so I hope that was helpful for you last week in getting a larger and better understanding of these 12 guys, but we're, but we're not quite done with the Q&A introduction yet because I have two more questions I want to ask and answer today. Uh, today, we're going to try to understand two things. Number one, what were they called to and why were they called? Because both of those questions will, I think, finish out the picture, finish out the foundation of who the disciples are and will give us a good a good. Uh, base on which to build as we work forward. So let's look at question number three. What were these 12 men called to? Well, if you will look at verse 14, you will see very clearly that they are being called to the office of apostle. And let me just point out something pretty quickly here, I think. I just want you to notice the language that is used here because this language is important. It's, he, notice the words, he appointed. This is putting all of the emphasis of this act back on Jesus. The word appointed here is an interesting word because in Greek it's the same word for he made or he created. And so here he is making the 12. Here he is creating the 12 as if in this act of choosing these men, Jesus is starting something new. And, and so that puts the emphasis of this act on him, not on them. Yes, he's going to choose them, and we're going to talk about them in a moment. But, but Mark has worded this in such a way that it's very clear that all of this falls back on Jesus as the first foundation. He's the one appointing. He's the one making them apostles. But that leads us to a question, of course. What exactly is an apostle? I mean, if he's creating them to this end, if he's making them to this end, what exactly is he making them into? And, and the word apostle simply means one who was sent, a sent one. And, and Jesus probably isn't speaking Greek here. He's probably speaking Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there's a word that means exactly the same thing. It's called, a, it's called shalaya, if I pronounced it correctly, which I probably didn't. But a shalaya is an official representative who spoke and acted with the authority of the one represented. And this whole concept was one that would have been very well understood in Jesus's day, very well understood. And so, you know, if you're a Roman official and you've got something that needs to be done, needs to be said, needs to be communicated, needs to be overseen, whatever, you would send out an apostle. You would send out a shalaya, an official representative who would go to whatever it is that, that you need taken care of. And when they arrive, they are viewed as having the same exact authority and position as the one who sent them. So then if I'm the guy who's been sent by governor so-and-so, and there's a dispute underway, and you're saying this, but you're saying this, I'm going to make a ruling. My ruling is considered to have the same weight as the person who sent me. You understand? I, I, I'm not him. But because I am his apostle, his shalaya, his representative, 
I carry the same weight and same authority as, as he does. Similarly, the, the Jews use this quite a bit. If the high priest needed to, to send a representative to a particular city to speak to the, the men in the synagogue, for example, often he's not going to go himself. He would send his shaliah a representative to go and speak. And what, whatever ruling he issues then, that, that shaliah is considered to be the same as if the high priest had issued it himself. That, that's important because it means that what Jesus is calling these guys to here is not some advanced form of discipleship. Because I think that's what we sometimes think. We think, well, they're apostles. That means they're like super disciples. No, 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 no. That's really missing the point. They're not being called just to some advanced form of discipleship. It is rather a calling to an official position of representation and authority under him. So that when they speak, you hear the whistle? Isn't that annoying? It's never happened on a Sunday. Now today is the day as it happens. We've got to work on that. When they speak, they're going to be speaking in Jesus' name. When they act, They're going to be acting with the authority that Jesus has. And so that's kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, he's calling them to to a position where they are going to be able to go out and represent him personally, to speak with his authority personally, to act with his authority personally. That's why this is such a big deal. And that's why these 12 guys take such a prominent place in the New Testament. They've been personally appointed by Jesus to represent him and to speak and act in his place. And so that's huge. And that's what an apostle is. And I want to pause at this moment personally or purposefully here and go down a rabbit trail of two, two little points that I think become very important as you understand that. Number one, This is why I think that the scene in Acts chapter 1, where the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles, excuse me, choose Judas' replacement, I think that's invalid. Now you're going to hear that and be like, what do you mean? Well, hold on. Stick with me for a second. We're not going to read the whole passage because it's kind of long, but I'll give you kind of a lead in and then I'll, I'll cut right to the point where it's, I think we need to be. But it's, it's Acts chapter 1 verse 12. It's where the story begins. It's after Jesus has ascended and so the, the apostles come back to Jerusalem and they go up to the upper room and they're gathered together, together with a whole bunch of other disciples. Uh, Luke tells us about 120 are there in the room, okay? So they're there for several days and, and while they're waiting, Peter stands up and he says uh, that the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. And he quotes from Psalm 109.8 that someone should take Judas's place to be a witness for Jesus. And we're going to pick up the story right after that in verse 21. Okay, Peter's speaking. Peter's speaking. So one of the men, Peter says, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection because he wants, he wants someone to take Judas's place. He wants to get back to the, the number 12. And so he, he gives this, this criteria. It's got to be someone who's been with us the whole time from baptism until, until ascension. Who could that be? Verse 23, they put forward two names. Joseph called Barsabas, who's also called Justice, and a guy named Matthias. And they prayed and they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take 
the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, notice that in their minds, Matthias is becoming an apostle, is he not? I mean, it says that specifically. He is taking this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. And this process of, of having someone replace Judas is, is determined through casting lots. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's basically like rolling dice. It, or it could be that there are two like colored shards in a bag. One's red and one's blue. And so God, which if Matthias is red and, and Joseph is blue, whoever you want, help us to pick that one. Oh, it's red, it's Matthias. Okay, this is the concept of casting lots. They pray, God, give us direction, and then they cast lots and they choose him. But, but notice also that Luke, who's writing this, makes no comment here, either positively or negatively, about what they've done. He just simply records the moment and he moves on. And just so you know, this guy Matthias, who I'm not, not picking on him at all, he's never mentioned again, ever. But based on what we've seen so far, see, I, I don't really think this process here is valid because I would assume that in order to become an apostle of Jesus, that, that you would have to be appointed by him personally, chosen by him personally, called by him personally for that office. To be chosen by the 11 via a roll of the dice isn't really sufficient for making you an apostle in my mind. I think you have to be chosen by Christ. And if you wait just eight chapters, you get to Acts chapter 9, you do see Jesus choose someone. You do Jesus, see Jesus call someone, appoint someone as an apostle. Who is it? It's Paul, or Saul at that point, but he's going to have his name changed to Paul. And so Paul becomes this apostle, personally chosen, personally appointed by Christ for the office of apostle. And that's never said about Matthias, ever in the New Testament. And by the time you get to Revelation, by the way, Revelation talks about how there being how many apostles and names on the gates? Twelve, not thirteen. So somebody's out, okay? <laughs> I don't know who, Matthias, Paul, you pick, whatever you think, somebody's out, or one of the other, Peter maybe, he got voted out, who knows? I don't know. I, I'm just pointing out to you, I, I'm just saying that here in Acts chapter 1, Luke records what's happening. He records what's done, but it never says that this is the right thing, that they should have been doing this. I think they jumped the gun. I think they, they got a little anxious. Peter's kind of known for that, right? He, he jumps out ahead of things sometimes when he should hold back and wait. And I think Jesus was going to take care of it himself. And you see that by Acts chapter 9. Only Jesus chooses apostles. Number two, if I could make another little side comment here. It's for that same reason that I also believe that the office of apostle is gone today. Because you'll see churches sometimes where on the sign, the church is led by apostle so-and-so. And when you see that, you know, two questions need to pop in your head. Right off the bat, every time, two questions. One, apostle of who? Because if he's like the apostle of Joe, the other guy in the church, you know, that's fine then, right? I can be Stacy, the apostle of Ed. You want to call me the Apostle Stacy from this point, that's totally legit. If you understand who I'm an apostle of, okay? But that language is confusing because we don't ever use that word for anyone else other than Jesus, right? So that's one question that pops in my head. Who are they an apostle of? Number two, if they're saying they're an apostle of Jesus, then I want to know, when did Jesus appear to you? 
Like, when did that happen? That's kind of cool, because he's never done that to me and, like, sent me out and given me this title. The, the office of apostle is not one that's merely passed down generation to generation. It's not one that I get to, to, to lay on you because I've been given it by someone else and I'm going to keep passing it down the line. No, no, no. If you're an apostle of Jesus, it's because Jesus has appeared to you in person and called you to this role, and I don't think that's happened. Here, these men are being personally appointed by Jesus to the office of apostle, and as such, they become his representatives on earth. And as we think about what they're being called to then, let's also think about the process that's being followed in that calling, okay? So they're they're being called to be an apostle. Well, what does that look like practically? Well, let's go back and remember the stages, okay? In stage one, we had this, this hearing or this introductory phase, right? And in that introductory phase, they're simply hearing and learning. They're just listening to what's being said by Jesus, what's being said about Jesus, and and they're listening and they're learning, but they're continuing on with their normal lives. We saw that last week. They're still fishing. In phase number two, they move into this following phase where Jesus calls them to a full-time following, a a serious following. This is where they leave their nets, leave their boats, and, and go after him. And then Phase three is this ministry phase that we see here, this this really intensive time of training. And if you look at Mark chapter three, verse 14, you see that kind of explained here. First, when he says that they might be with him. This role of being an apostle means that they're going to have special access to Jesus. And as you look at the, the overall course of the gospels and what happens, you notice a number of things that become true from this point forward. First, they're going to be constantly with him constantly. What a privilege. They're just living their life with Jesus, day in, day out, at the closest levels. They're they're having the opportunity to be exposed to, to Jesus in all kinds of settings, all kinds of situations, interacting with all kinds of people. So when, when people are sick, when there's a demon, when there's no food, when, when there's a storm, when people don't like him, when people love him... <laughs> They're they're seeing everything, all kinds of situations in very close personal detail. Number two, you see that from this point on, they have very personal teaching, right? Very direct, very intentional. Multiple times we're going to see Mark tell us that Jesus pulled the disciples aside and he taught them. Hey, you need to understand this, and you need to know what's going to happen here. And, and this is how this works. Do you understand? Do you get it? He's going he's to teach them very personally and intentionally throughout the rest of his time with them. Number three, you're going to see a lot of question and answer. Sometimes Jesus comes to them and like, hey, who do men say that I am? Sometimes he comes to them and he's like, what do you think about this? Why were you guys doing that? And then they answer and they engage in a conversation. But more often than not, you see them come to him. Hey, uh, you were just saying this to these guys over here. What did that mean? Why, Why did you do this? A lot of question and answer, a lot of interaction between them about just the things that are going on in life. And this is what I think Mark is referring to here in verse 14 about them being with him. It's going to include all of these things. But number two, it's also going to include some authority that's going to be given to them. And you see two specific things mentioned here at the end of this little section. Number one, that they would go out and preach or teach. That they're going to be speaking on his behalf 
to the people around him, proclaiming the same message that he himself proclaims because they're his apostles, right? They speak with his authority, which means they have to speak his message. Number two, they're being given authority to cast out demons to do what he does. So they're going to speak what he speaks. They're going to do what he does. But even more practical than that, we're going to watch Jesus work this into the normal rhythm of their life via a process. So, for example, a time is going to come where he's going to send them out in groups of two. So, hey, Peter and and Matthew, you guys go to this town. And uh, Bartholomew and Thomas, you guys go over there. And go speak and preach to them. And go do the things I've done there. And then come back. He, he, He sends them out in twos to practice and then brings them back in and talks to them about it. Later, his ultimate goal is to send them out full time, alone to replicate this very process with others. And and I would like to argue with you this morning that this is a good model for us as we think about this concept of discipleship as well. Because when you say the word discipleship to people, a lot of folks have a very different idea in mind than what you see listed here. Because they think of, well, discipleship's a class. And if I take the eight-week class, I'm discipled. Yes. If I go through the 40-page booklet and I complete all the lessons and I filled in all the blanks, I'm discipled. And that kind of thinking is like so incredibly foreign to what you see in the New Testament that I don't even know where to begin like critiquing that, right? When you think about how we go about the whole idea of discipleship as a church today, you realize that you're going to have people around you, sitting around you right now, that are in all three of these phases that the disciples, the apostles were in, right? You're going to have everyone beginning by this introductory phase where they're just being introduced to Jesus. They're just really hearing about him. They're just kind of learning about him. They may not even be believers at this point. They may just be listening. And I've been thankful that over the years, God has given us many opportunities to, to, to have those kinds of people around us just to listen to Jesus, listen to what we have to say about Jesus, what the scriptures have to say about Jesus. This is the basic level. The next phase is the commitment level, the following level, where people really begin to live out what it means to follow after Jesus and to believe in him. And, and, and I would say that phase is never done on your own, ever. That when you're called to follow Jesus, you're called to follow him in a group, in a community, in a family. It reminds me of the saying, the spiritual growth is a community project, because it is. People who stay on their own don't grow. Just write it down. They don't grow in the end. And so if you're being called to this commitment, this following phase, you're being called into a community, into a family. The third phase is that ministry phase where where they really begin to embrace and identify themselves as ministers and missionaries of Jesus, cleverly disguised as as something else, as we like to say around here. And, And that's not even complicated as you follow the pattern you see here in the Gospels. This is just living life with people, inviting them purposely into your to your life to just be there for dinner and to watch your kids be bad and to see how you respond to, to this and to that and to the other thing. To, to, to just be there when you do well and when you don't do well. So they can understand what, what a believer lives like. It includes teaching them directly and intentionally. Addressing things you see, addressing things that they don't understand. To, to just take the time to pour into them. And people are, are, are so um, intimidated by that because they're like, well, that might be like confrontational and uncomfortable. And I'm like, well, yeah, if you don't know them, it's particularly uncomfortable. 
But if you've been spending your life with that person and and living with them and, and trying to help them see how you live, then you've been given an open door to speak, to walk through it. Take that door, go in there, address the things they need to know, confront when you need to, encourage when you need to. It includes lots of Q&A. It includes finding ways to send them out, to practice all the things they've been taught. And the goal is always then to see them replicate that with someone else. The, The goal of discipleship is not like forever we're together. You're not getting married to the person. Maybe you are sometimes, okay? I, I just like, I, I see people come and they're like, can you disciple me? And I'm like, like how long? Like 18 months, we, not, Jesus did that. But like, if you're thinking the rest of your life, I'm thinking we might need to rethink this. Like at some point you move on. <laughs> you, you, begin to be the, you begin to be the person who draws people in. You begin to be the person who's teaching and training. It, it's not that you've graduated or matured. There's always a, a, a camaraderie, a community, a, a sense of discipling one another. But, but this model of discipleship is, is, is the way I think that Jesus intended it for us here. It's not a class. It's not a booklet. It, it, it looks like this. It's what we have been called to do. Now, very, very quickly, why were they called? I'll just sum it up with this. Not because of anything in them. I mean, Jesus had an opportunity, right? He's got huge crowds we saw in Mark 3, 7 to 12. He's got huge crowds coming to him, and he could have put all of his emphasis on the crowds. He could have just said, hey, I'm going to work this angle, and I'm going to really get these crowds fired up, and then we're going to go out and build the kingdom. Instead, he preaches a message to them about, hey, if you want to follow me, you need to eat my blood and drink my, or eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, hey, out of here, gone. He drives crowds away. Instead of focusing on crowds, he takes 12 men and pours 18 months of life into them. That's very different than how most churches and ministries act today. Draw the crowds, get the crowds. 12, like we could do way better than 12. Let's get 12,000. 12,000 is way more successful than 12. Jesus doesn't doesn't do that. He picks 12 men with no special talents, no special abilities, no special uh, uh, status, no special spirituality, nothing. He takes 12 sinners and he uses them to turn the world upside down. I, I think you have two things really modeled for us here. One, you have God's sovereign grace in coming to and choosing sinners. And two, you have God's plan for kingdom expansion. Because Jesus here seeks these 12 men out. They don't seek him. That's different. Normally in that day, if you wanted to, to be a, a disciple, a, tra- a learner, you come to him and you ask for, for help. Jesus comes to them, seeks them out, not based on anything they had done, but based on his mercy and grace. And folks, that's still how Jesus chooses people today, right? He comes to people who are worthless, sinners, nothing in them that he wants, no special abilities or talents or spiritual status or any of those things. He, he takes them, he calls them, he appoints them as disciples, he creates them, he makes them his own. This isn't man's work, this is God's work. And the emphasis throughout Scripture is back on Jesus in that process, never on us, always back on him for making all of those things come about. It's nothing but grace start to finish. The, the other thing you see here modeled here is God's plans for kingdom expansion. And here's the big uh, uh, takeaway from this. It's not via crowdsourcing. The goal for us here is not to, to try to draw huge crowds in. The, the goal isn't breadth, it's depth. So Jesus takes 12 guys. Think about this. If you were any other ministry today, any other spiritual leader today, he takes 12 guys 
He pours 18 months into them. One of them turns on him, and he dies. The entire church is basically made up of 11 people. Everyone around him today would think he's a failure. And yet he takes these 11 men and he turns the world upside down because he did this very thing we talked about. He came along and he put his arm around them and said, let me show you the way. And this is what we have been called to as well. You don't have to be spiritually mature to start this process, folks. I guarantee you, wherever you're at on the scale of of spiritual growth or the spectrum of spiritual growth, you're further along than somebody. Okay? Guaranteed. You're further along than somebody if you're a believer in Jesus. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be willing to say, let's walk this path together. And God can take that and use that to turn the world around. And the goal in the end is to prepare them to go out and do the same for others. That is what biblical discipleship looks like. It's slow, it's messy, it's filled with mistakes. But if infused with God's grace and power, then empowered by the Spirit, nothing can stop it. And so I call you to that today, to embrace that path of discipleship as we try to reach Hampton Road. We bow your heads and close your eyes. God, we thank you for this. We thank you for your word that shows us very clearly your plans, that you don't choose us based on our abilities, you choose us based on your grace. There was nothing in these guys, they were sinners. And yet you chose them. Thank you, Lord, for choosing us. And Lord, I pray then that for us as a church that we will embrace the whole biblical idea of discipleship that we see here in how you treated these men. You lived your life with them. You taught them. You interacted with them. You trained them in practical ways, sent them out. And in the end, Lord, you you sent them out with the ability and the goal to replicate themselves and others. It's It's simple. And everyone in this room could be doing this right now if they know you as their Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that that you will convict us and that you will cause us as a church, as a people, to be seeking out those around us whom we can bring into our lives and, and disciple in this way to look more like you. Mature us. It's true, Lord. The teacher always learns the most. And so as we pursue this in other people's lives, teach us and humble us and give us the ability to do what we could not do on our own, only through your spirit and through your word. And so, Lord, I I ask that you will take Cornerstone and use it to be a discipleship-centered church here in Hampton Road. We ask in Jesus' name.